Hey, what's up, Conceders? And welcome to this week's episode of Concessions, where we dig into a big old plate of pasta carbonara, otherwise known as Moonstruck. This is a movie that's near and dear to my heart, being among the crowning cinematic achievements of all time by my favorite playwright, John Patrick Shanley. Over the years, I've directed and starred in several of his plays, and he's always been a real stand-up dude in our correspondence. I also love the fine example of an early Nicolas Cage performance that foreshadows a lot of the greatness that was still in his future back in 1987. This is also one of the finest films by director Norman Jewison, who sadly passed away last week at the age of 97. The movie is quite the gift for him to leave behind and features some brilliant turns by Cher and Olivia Dukakis as well, all set to some splendid music from Puccini. I'm also really happy that for this episode, Dan and I are joined by my dearest friend, Britta Sterling. She's a professional vocalist, opera singer, and leader of the Source Filter Music Collective in Los Angeles, and graciously shared her knowledge of the opera, which is, of course, essential to the appreciation of Moonstruck. My memory is kind of fuzzy, but I'm pretty sure she's the person who originally introduced me to this movie back in high school uh, many years ago. If you enjoy Concessions, please don't forget to give us a follow and a rating and turn on notifications so you don't miss our new episodes, which drop every single Monday morning, along with bonus episodes peppered throughout the week. You can find me on threads at Jared Concessions. Dan is over on X at Dan Concedes. Now pour yourself a nice red wine, cuddle up with your loved ones, and enjoy Dan, Britta, and I getting chatty over Norman Jewison's Moonstruck. Welcome to Concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And today we're going to be exploring the horrors of being an Italian-American in New York. Ooh. Ooh. I, th- I thought we were done doing horror episodes for a while. Yeah, we're right back in, at least to a good Midwestern boy. This was particularly terrifying subject matter. Well, we have a real-life Italian-American with ah, us where? today. Oh, She's right there on the other screen. That She's the one that isn't me on your computer screen right now. <laughs> this is Britta Sterling. She Hi. is an... Hey, Britta. Britta is an opera singer, director, producer, I think at this point, uh, who's also a founding member of the Source Filter Collective of Musicians, Singers. Britta, welcome to Concessions. Hello. It was very weird having you introduce me like that, especially as a director. Because I've only been stage directing for like a year. <laughs> it's a very okay. new thing for me. You have stage directed far more operas than I have. <laughs> yes. And that I have done them at all, I guess. It, and it's, yeah. it's also funny you like name dropping my little music collective, which is literally just like me and my LA music friends just like singing weird shit that we want to sing that like no one else will produce. And then we're just like, we're going to put on this weird micro opera with a dog in it. Like, so that's like, the whole reason um, it exists. <laughs> so, like, the people that I randomly talk to about the stuff I want to write were a writer's collective? Yeah, it's know? it's basically, yeah. It's the same kind of vibes. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're a bullshitting <laughs> about movies collective. <laughs> uh, Excuse me, uh, we're a salon, actually. Mm. Oh, much a cla- salon. Much classier. <laughs> Just, like, we're like Steel Magnolias. Oh, I was thinking more like Sartre. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
I thought you meant like, <laughs> like ladies doing each other's one? hair. No, <laughs> like, like in the Parisian sense. No. <laughs> but why oh, not shit. both? You know, we can we can discuss like uh, art and philosophy while we. Well, er, Jared, you actually can't join the uh, hair salon, can you? I mean, I spend a lot of time in barber shops getting really elaborate beard trims. <laughs> like I'll, I'll get a facial, a beard trim, a eyebrow wax, a nose wax, Ooh. all at once, a head shave. I'm there for like three hours and I come out of it looking almost exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> Just getting the full Sweeney Todd treatment, basically. Not the full Sweeney like 95%. Yeah. Though, yeah. 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 A stylish trimming of the hair. Nope. But I do get a soothing skin massage. And things better. Yeah. A little scalp massage. I love it so much. They give you a beer. It's the best. Gosh, I could talk about my ablutions all day. But, Britta, I'm like so freaking glad that you're here because. Our friendship was like very, very, very foundational to me, like really like thinking more critically about movies, having having someone to just like sit there and talk about them with endlessly who wouldn't, you know, get fatigued by listening to me. Aww. And me too. It was the same. And then yeah. I and then I met Matt Latham like two years after I met you and got the second friend that would you yeah. know listen to me talk about movies for like hours on end. Right. And then uh uh additional friend of the podcast, Matt Zunick, soon after mm -hmm. that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited to have have him on the show to talk about Jaws. But uh how how long have you and Matt been been roommates? A combined total of like eight or nine years, I think. Man, like I was we're gonna, I, we're common law married. Uh which I was about to ask at what point like, can you have filed for that? Probably now, honestly. <laughs> yeah, like, you're, you're probably missing out on some like, like excellent I, benefits. Both of us are like freelance artists for the most part, so like no one has good insurance. But if either of us did, then we would definitely, I think, like go on the other's insurance. Like we could, we could probably do that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I wonder if legally one of you would be uh, Peach the dog's legal guardian if the other were to perish suddenly. Uh, well. Mm. I mean, she's a 12-year-old dog, so the odds of that are, you know, not great at this point. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It would be there. It would if I went, it would I think if she I think she'd have to go to Matt because my mom would uh, not be capable of taking care of a dog or anything if she survived me. Uh, but, yeah, so I think Matt would be her legal guardian. He would hate to know that. But I think that is true. <laughs> You'd be really upset about that fact. Yeah, he'll he'll be filing some sort of legal motion to avoid yeah, that if he heard he having this conversation. Um, yeah, he, yeah, he'd want like a paternity test or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because all men are it, dogs, am I right? Mm. Oh, what if it came up positive though? <laughs> I saw this tweet that was like, "No, I, like, did I adopt my cat? No, this is my biological cat." <laughs> Uh, so good. Uh, well, uh, enough about, you know, a bunch of random shit of Britta's life. Mm. Britta, what are you drinking over there? I'm drinking, uh, it's like a whiskey tea, basically just like Earl Grey tea, scotch and lemon. So like um, a hot toddy almost? Yeah. Like an unsweet hot toddy, basically. 
So, but with sc- scotch instead of like bourbon, basically. Yeah. And I'm in our uh, recording booth. Um, that's like in our little Harry Potter closet. Um, under our stairs, and it's like really, really hot in here, which is why I have the door open. Um, but I am actually kind of regretting like making a hot drink already. And then I, I, but I wanted something that I could have in like kind of like a vacuum sealed container in case I drop it because there's like a lot of expensive um, recording equipment in this little closet. So I was like paranoid about spilling anything, but I should have picked a cold drink. But Suffering for your work. I respect it. Yeah. <laughs> you picked exactly what I would imagine someone whose entire professional life has to do with their voice would pick. <laughs> the voice, yeah. your voice and the voice of others. Mm. yeah you're setting a good example I, 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 i'm really not though because there's caffeine in the tea and there you know the alcohol is drying just because it's warm that's maybe the only good thing and then also that i have a bottle of water as well to try and like take a drink of both to like even it out but no do, I'm, do, I'm opera, singers, do opera singers not abuse substances as much as like rock and roll singers <laughs> Definitely not as much as rock and roll singers, but bar, though. but I would say, yeah, very, yeah, exactly. But uh, no, I would say like most of my friends uh, that are singers, unless it's like religious or like personal reasons, like drink, a lot of them smoke weed or like have edibles, uh, do other drugs as well. Um, one of my tightest uh, friends, he's a really amazing baritone, um, is pretty big into the rave scene. And uh he still sounds awesome. Um, I think like, as long as you're just kind of like pacing yourself, uh, and making sure that like, you aren't doing this stuff constantly, you're fine. I mean, like the opera greats, like, you know, uh, people from like the 1950s and before they used to like smoke cigars and cigarettes, like chain smoke and drink constantly. And they all sounded incredible. So it's like, right. There's things you should do. Some people are going to be more sensitive to things like alcohol and uh, tobacco. And some people are just freak voices. You know, it's just you kind of have to know yourself. But well, I heard I heard Pavarotti was addicted to um, smoking heroin. Did I just make that up? Yes, you definitely. Yeah, that's why he was so thin and strung out because he was like <laughs> heroin. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was such a, a skinny little man with like such a, a terrible voice. He did smoke an insane amount of cigars, and he like drank, and he just like. I mean, if anything, he was addicted to like pasta. The man was like an incredible eater, um, but he did smoke, and yeah, sounded amazing until the day he died, basically. So amazing now dan what are you drinking and there better be a similar amount of banter to follow it up you're actually i'm kind of drinking the inverse of you so i have a giant glass of scotch uh because i learned uh that costco you can get a whole essentially a jug of it for like 20 bucks and it's good enough scotch but i got a little cute with it where i put uh coffee cubes in there to give it a little bit of an extra uh flavor to it but i don't have any real special banter about the history of this drink. I just felt like a giant jug of scotch about a week ago. So I've been working through it. Um, but similar to your uh, comments on like alcohol and performance and stuff like that, like I was on the more sensitive side where I was a starting pitcher. So I only pitched once a week. So like, let's say if I was pitching on Friday, I wouldn't touch booze starting on like Wednesday, even Tuesday, I'd have like a beer or two. Uh, Cause I could tell, like if I even had a couple 
drinks and went to sleep, like I would feel off the next day where I knew people that would play drunk or play really hungover. In yeah. fact, they play better when they're like in shambles somehow inexplicably. Like some people just got that in them. It's exactly the same with singers. This is a conversation <laughs> for another podcast, but I have always found the parallels between baseball players, particularly and like classical singers to be really weird in terms of like, I I, th- I know you guys can be really superstitious about mm. the things that you need to do in order to like play a game. And singers are a lot of singers are the same way about like the rituals and the things that they have to do before they go on stage. And like mm. same thing with how some people can like live really hard and like still sing pretty well. And then other people are like, I can't I have to like take care of myself for like an entire week you know before i can like get on stage it really just like depends but i've found those parallels really interesting we should talk about that off mic sometime right (laughs) well well i i heard that um babe ruth was addicted to smoking heroin (laughs) (laughs) you hang out with uh yeah you hang out the opera singers in town (laughs) also why he was so like skinny and strung out all the time Oh no! It was that that was Lou Gehrig. I mean, shit. I would know. Um, and we can cut this out if it's too crass. But um, shit. I mean, I would know people that have jerk off schedules around their starts. Where, wow. Like, they, would, they would plan out like the day, like they would like store it up until the day before, and then okay. okay. I've never known any opera singers that would go that far. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, there have been opera singers who just completely cut off their balls before puberty. <laughs> Oh, was that Kestrat? Not anymore, thankfully. Although I always have been kind of curious because, like, we only we have like one really shitty early recording of Farinelli, I think. Um, and he was like 70 years old, so he was like way past his prime. But like the written accounts of what Castrati sounded like, they're just like, it was extraordinary. Like the voices of the angels, because they had like so much power. They had like a man's like lung capacity, basically. Mm. And like, I would love to hear what that would sound like. But, you know, at what cost? At what cost? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure there's someone out there. Like a really talented, like prepubescent boy accidental, like some sort of horrible accident occurs. And then he's like, well, I'm going to make the best of this. Yeah, become well, the greatest yeah. singer ever. You know, life happened, takes your lemons. <laughs> oh, whoa, that was a good one, man. Yeah, like <laughs> testicles are very lemony. Um, <laughs> I I have the same beer that I that I've had for the last three weeks. This is a uh, uh, my Georgetown Brewing Lucille IPA. It's it tastes like what beer tastes like these days. And uh, <laughs> this is about a six pack. This is the third week in a row I've had one of these, and there'll be three more to come. Does it need to be? Have you like not been crushing brews, dude? I'm not much of a drinker, man. Like at all. Like neither is my wife. Neither neither are my kids. You know, Um, (laughs) because you know they're four and two respectively. Um, So yeah, I don't. I just haven't been drinking much. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not that much of a drinker, which which might surprise both of you, considering like whenever either of you visit, we just binge drink. That's. that's I mean, I I don't know that that's a you thing though, Jared. I just yeah. (laughs) I, I tell that to oh, my siblings all the time. You on blast. <laughs> uh, whenever I go and see them, I'm always like very drunk around them. So I'm like, I promise I don't have a drinking problem. It's just whenever we're hanging out, I'm on vacation. So I'm behaving like I'm on vacation. And I can't be the fun aunt to your kids unless I'm a little drunk. You know, oh, yeah, like that, that goes with the fun aunt, right? She's supposed to be like kind of drunk most of the time. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like... <laughs> I'm trying to be the eclectic absentee uncle where like, 
but because most of my family is out east right now and you know, I don't know, one of my nephews or something. So I was like, don't I have like an uncle somewhere <laughs> in know. the West? He's like, yeah, he's somewhere in California. We kind of lost track of him. Like he'll pop up every once in a while. That's that's what I'm seeking to be. Mm. My kids think that Dan is M's dad. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Aren't am I yeah, older I, than I haven't, I haven't told you this. No, no. I think, no, no, you are. You're like a year or two older than her. Oh, okay. Um, so this could happen. Yeah. But but <laughs> No, so M's dad is named Dan, mm. and Roma knows that. And so whenever I mention Dan Ludwig, she's like, oh, mommy's daddy. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's fucking weird. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you're, you're you're more than an estranged uncle to my kids. <laughs> I'm an estranged father. Or grandfather, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, you're an estranged, estranged grandfather. Um, oh, wow. We are so off the rails. I love this. This is a good old time. Uh, Britta, ladies first. So what was something other than, you know, Moonstruck, obviously, that you watched this week, that you listened to, that you read, that you took in, that, you know, enriched you or, or interested you in one way or another? Um. Well, uh, I saw Priscilla and I liked, hmm. and I liked it fine. Uh, I thought it was like pretty good. Um, Sofia Coppola's like general shtick, like her just visual language is like catnip for me. So even though I can recognize that I'm like, she's done this before and she's done it better in other movies, I'm still like, yeah, I'm gonna fucking rewatch this. Like, <laughs> I I enjoyed it a lot. It was good. Not her best, as I said, but still pretty good. Uh, and then on Halloween, my roommate and I, uh, the aforementioned Matt, who will be on the podcast at some point, we uh, have a tradition of watching a horror movie and then a bunch of Treehouse of Horror um, on Halloween. And so we watched uh, Silence of the Lambs, which that movie just fucking slaps, just like a perfect movie. And then, yeah, a bunch of Treehouse of Horror. I don't know how, but with that movie, I always forget how good it is every mm. single time. And then when I rewatch it, I'm just like, oh, this movie... Uh, although it does have its issues as well, um, you know, there's there's some some weird uh, transphobia in it, although they do try to talk around that in the movie as well. You know, um, I think we're all kind of familiar with the dialogue around that, but um, still a very good movie. And then I also read a book in a couple days that is the first book by Anna Biller, who is the uh, director of The Love Witch. And some other movies, and I think you guys are going to eventually do an episode on The Love Witch. Uh, and her book is Bluebeard's Castle. It's kind of like a, like an homage to uh, sort of like romance books and also like the women's movies of like, you know, like the 1940s, like the like Joan Crawford kind of pictures, like Mildred Pierce and like that kind of stuff. And it was very interesting, like very highly stylized, fun to read. So just like basically on a biller on the page. Um, it was really cool. I would recommend it. That's great. One more time. What was the title of it? Bluebeard's. Uh, it's. It actually might not. Hold on. Let me check my Kindle. It's. It's Bluebeard's. Some. Bluebeard's Castle. It is Bluebeard's Castle. Yeah. That was something that was on my radar too. It's a love witch. I think it's on Mubi right now, and I like almost threw down during October, and now I'm kind of in a in a horror cleanse right now, so I'm staying away from anything horror directed. But I do want to check it out. It's a, yeah. It's a great one. Um, our friend, uh, I'm gonna call him friend of the podcast, even though he hasn't really been on it yet, but he will be. Uh, Matt Latham 
is a love witch evangelist um and he's actually writing a book about it right yeah, now literally wrote <laughs> the book yeah. on the love witch mm-hmm. <laughs> like this dude loves particular movies more than anyone else i've ever yeah. met will like a particular movie yeah. i love that and and he's you know he's he's really fucking good director and editor mm-hmm. like he's directed so he's he's edited some like you know, fairly high profile horror films here and there. And, you know, he's, he's directed some shorts that are excellent. And, uh, I imagine, um, we'll, we'll see a lot of, of Matt Latham, uh, he's done in the features future. too that were also excellent. He has two features, I think that he's done. And then a bunch that of he directed? Yeah. Directed and oh wrote. Yeah. The I whole entrepreneur thing. Yeah. Oh, wow. I've only seen his shorts. And mm-hmm. then, uh, the movie Victor Crowley that he yeah. edited one of like, I think it's the third or fourth hatchet movie um dan i know you saw priscilla as well um what are, what are your thoughts there yeah i kind of echo uh britta's thoughts on it where it's like sofia coppola knows what she's doing with the camera and she's doing it again with priscilla and same to me where i i just eat that shit up it's so good um i liked i mean the deconstruction of like elvis as a myth and like from the other perspective i thought was really interesting i don't think it was like I expected it to be a little crueler, to be honest, towards Elvis. Like it did, definitely didn't paint him in a great light. I think it painted him and probably was a realistic light because what Priscilla Presley was the executive producer on this. So I imagine that it's pretty true to life and her experience. But yeah, I mean, I liked it fine. Uh, will I still be thinking about it a month or two from now? Probably not. I really liked the the Onion's headline about it. Or they said, oh. <laughs> Cr- critics loud Priscilla as haunting portrait of dating an awesome famous guy super rich and plays guitar too. <laughs> it did kind of not that this is a, uh, a Priscilla podcast, but it did kind of remind me like, do you think she was purposely leaning into sort of the Disney ish of it all where it felt like she's like Cinderella and the prince kind of pulled her up out of obscurity and she gets to live this lavish life of, you know, comfort and joy. I think maybe she was using that visual language a little bit. But also, like, really commenting on how, like, you know, kind of hollow that narrative is and how, mm-hmm. like, you know, Priscilla herself and Elvis were, like, using it, you know, kind of like that was their version of the narrative that was presented to the public. But the movie's yeah. quite good about showing what an imbalance of power it was and what an abusive relationship it was. And so, I mean, it makes sense that she would use that kind of visual language to, like, contrast like, yeah. what was actually going on. Dang, now that we're yeah. talking about it more, I'm like, oh, I like it more than I than I thought I did, <laughs> I think. Um, but, oh, man, to, I think I texted you guys about this, too. And then I finished this movie, which I was going to say Glass Menagerie was the favorite thing I had, like, taken in this last week. And something even more impactful than the Glass Menagerie, which is, you know, a classic for a reason. I finished that movie last night, An Elephant Sitting Still. Um, I think I told you guys a little bit about it where it's this four hour Chinese mm. like epic about a day in the life of four different characters. It's supposed to kind of mimic Jason the Argonauts and it's kind of following the same structure as like, you know, how Ulysses is supposed to be at the time a contemporary retelling of the Odyssey. It's kind of doing the same thing, but in a, like in uh, essentially like the equivalent of like the Rust Belt of China. Like it's like this dilapidated northern Chinese city that's like super depressing looking. And I think I, I started, well, first off, uh, not funnily enough, um, this movie is notorious, not only for being like a landmark piece of cinema, at least within Chinese cinema, but the director finished it and a few weeks later committed suicide. Mm-hmm. So it's like inextricable from the text because uh, the, the film itself is really, really bleak, really nihilistic. 
And it's uh, he's a uh, an, uh, the director was a student under Bela Tar, so that makes sense that it would kind of have or sit on that same tone. And yeah, I'm getting close to saying that this is probably the best thing to come out in the 21st century so far. I mean, it's Damn. only been a day since I've seen it, but like it's at least one of the best things to come out in that last de- or in the decade of the 2010s. I don't see how anything else can reflect like the particular sort of nihilism that like millennials and people our age have these days. It's reflected really well in this and like um, like in the best way possible, like oppressive to watch. Not a casual watch, definitely not for everyone, but for those who have the, uh, I don't want to say the gumption, but the uh, predilection for such things, it's definitely a fruitful experience. Mm. Well, you, th- you say it's the best of the 20th century so far, but you haven't seen the Marvels yet. No, yeah, I haven't seen it, so I can't uh, I can't speak so soon. Yeah, you, you are correct in that uh, regard. And the new Aquaman, haven't checked that out either. Yeah, and you haven't re-watched ant-man and the wasp quantumania <laughs> that is true uh, oh man or... this podcast is getting so boomery now like i'm mm-hmm. i'm so like scorsese pilled at this point like <laughs> I, I i agree with him now <laughs> although um i i think no I, I don't know if i told either one of you guys that my girlfriend had never seen wolf of wall street so we watched it Ooh. uh like i don't know four or five days ago and i hadn't watched it since i've been in tech sales for like four years and I had not watched it since getting into tech sales. And me, Jared, another friend of mine who was also in tech sales, we did office space to like thought it would hurt our feelings. And it's like, eh, you know, wasn't wasn't as painful as we thought. Wolf of Wall Street like <laughs> hurt me to watch because uh, I've told Jared this for like in an actual like training meeting for sales, we watched an inspirational video from Jordan Belfort. Oh, like God. giving <laughs> tips on how to come across as trustworthy and amicable. And I'm like, is media literacy dead? Like people watch Wolf of Wall Street. It's like, oh, I need to get this guy. I need to, him to bend his ear on how to do sales. And like, there's just these little things that are peppered throughout the entire dialogue of the film about like sales tips and tricks that I've heard in tech that like they were nowadays they're more watered down to see kind of like the edges are kind of softened off and they're kind of kinder sounding but uh jordan belfort in the movie he's just like straight up what they're actually trying to do which has always made me deeply uncomfortable about sales to be honest okay i mean maybe i'm misremembering it but i i seem to remember him being super rich doing cool drugs and being married to margot robbie am i am i wrong no that (laughs) No, that is it. I just I'm saying I'm like a, a loser, idiot, uh, moron, and I don't want any of those things. <laughs> you're 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 a good dude, Dan. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't I don't have anything nearly as uh, deep or challenging as an elephant sitting still. Uh, in fact, I think Moonstruck was the only movie I watched this past week because uh, my wife and I started watching uh, The Fall of the House of Usher. Just super sick, and Mike Flanagan basically just does. He never misses on these on these miniseries Netflix horror miniseries that he does, um, and most of his movies too are just fucking killer. But um, I've been reading a lot of more just like kind of academic style texts about about movies and storytelling and screenplays and that sort of thing, and reading a lot of screenplays. And then I read like a pretty heavy kind of challenging novel um, called Breasts and Eggs. Oh, I like that one. Yeah, it's good. And and uh, but but then afterwards, my friend Steph gave me uh, a book that was just like a palate cleanser, just like a like some eye bleach. 
a book called Daisy Jones and the Six. It's just like one of the most like fun, just entertaining, just like bubble gummy, uh, just totally saccharine reads that I've had recently. It was so good. It's like, if you don't know what it, what it is, it's this sort of mockumentary on the page of this like 1970s band that's like clearly supposed to be Fleetwood Mac or like very, very similar story where it's like the interpersonal relationships of this like rock band on a meteoric rise are just like destroying the band from the inside and all the big personalities are clashing with each other. Everyone's in love with everyone else. Like, like all the music they're making is totally cool. But all these people are just like terrible and uh, man, it was so much fun to read. I'm going to watch the miniseries now uh, because the book just uh, just flew right by and it was so much fun. So is it like a this is Spinal Tap? Kind of. Yeah, it's um, so the, it's it's uh, I, I guess I wouldn't call it an epistolary novel because it's not letters. The basically the fictitious author is interviewing all of the mm. the players in present day about you know, what the seventies was like for them. And so it's all in the first person, but from like 15 different people's perspectives. Mm. Um, and uh, there's no, like there's chapter breaks here and there, but it just kind of reads like a, like an interview basically. And it was so much fun. And yeah, there's a pretty well, well-regarded um, mini series on Amazon Prime, and here's how we tie, tie it together. It stars Priscilla Presley's granddaughter in the lead role. Hey, there we go. Uh, Riley Kao. And uh, I hear it's pretty good, and I'm going to watch it now. Hmm, that's cool. Well, not oh. now. I'll, I'll watch it after <laughs> like, we see you guys. I got to go. A little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, speaking of Mike Flanagan, um, it was kind of fun. There was, you know, Twitter being as exhausting as it is. I guess Mike Flanagan got a letterboxed and like posted some of his favorite movies and they weren't like cool and edgy art house films. So like the, the lamest people on Twitter were like, Oh, like I don't want to watch his stuff anymore. Cause like, he doesn't like the cool avant-garde stuff that I like. He likes like rom-coms. And I think the number one was everything everywhere all at once. And people were like dragging him for that. I'm like, who, who gives a shit? But the people like what some guy personally likes, like he makes things you enjoy. I don't I don't see why they have to like the same things you like. I was, well, I mean, and his movies are like not of super avant garde, deep, challenging things either. Like his his are just well constructed, like fun horror dramas. Mm-hmm. I was one of like 10 people to message that list to Jared, apparently, <laughs> like everyone was sending him that. Yeah, people uh, know I like Mike Flanagan. Yeah. That's th- for sure. I thought it was a solid list. Were there people seriously talking shit on everything, everywhere, all at once? Yeah, they were like calling him kind of basic for his taste. And I'm like, who, who I gives feel a like shit? there's a reason that that movie is universally beloved. Like, yeah, I love it. I personally like. Love it. Maybe. I don't know. That's. Uh, I mean, it's kind of recent to put as your number one favorite movie of all time. Well, I don't know if it was like he when he posted the list. I don't know. If yeah, that was, was it in order? It was just. A, yeah, I think it was just a know. cluster of things he loved. Yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, was it actually ranked? I don't think it was ranked. But anyway, I mean, it fo- he followed, like, you know, the previous week, Scorsese did the same thing. And, you know, Scorsese's <laughs> list was all full of cinema, like capital <laughs> C, capital I, capital N, capital E, capital M, capital A. I think cinema. I spelled it right. Cinema. <laughs> like, and Mike Flanagan was like, oh, like, but have you seen Dawn of the Dead? And, like, 
you know, people are like, oh, yeah, like, oh, oh, your your movies came out this century, you fucking loser. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> sounds like a yeah. bunch of fucking like early college kids on Letterboxd or something. Like, that just seems like shit you would worry about in your like very early twenties if you're getting into film. You know, like, Which, yeah. I'm not gonna act like I wasn't like that at all. Oh, I was I totally yeah. like that at like 1920, but yeah, uh, like when it's oh, like, yeah. oh, I now know who Andre Tarkovsky is. Look at me. <laughs> oh yeah, Britta, uh, you definitely went through a like, oh, if it's popular, it must suck phase. I definitely did. I think that was like probably most of high school, honestly. But you know, eventually I realized that like fun stuff is fun, and you know, it's it's like popular things are popular for a reason a lot of the time so i'm also a recovering fun hater (laughs) oh yeah when we first started this thing i was like oh dan's gonna be the highfalutin one and i'm gonna be the populist and Mm. we're gonna have friction and then it turned out we're just good boys and we like talking to each other it's kind of funny jared you've always been a bit of a populist like i remember trying to like talk shit on you in high school for like some of your music taste and like your like uh, movie taste and you were just like what I like it it's good like you were always just like totally secure and like whatever yeah. was trying to drag you on you were just like no it's good like you're wrong and this is fun mm. and you were right I, yeah <laughs> that's true I think I think outwardly I was I was probably like uh-huh yeah I don't give a fuck what you think but inside <laughs> I was like I want to like the things that Britta likes <laughs> That, that's uh, how I remember. I was just talking to a friend about this where, you know, growing up, I I could only listen to like Christian music, watch Christian TV shows and stuff like that. So for me, the alternative and the edgy was uh, Q101 for me in Chicago. And it, it was just like basic alternative rock station. So it's like Red Hot Chili Pepper At the time, it's like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Foo Fighters, Creed, Breaking Benjamin, stuff like that. And I thought I was like really edgy and obscure for liking like some 41 and then when I learned that other people knew some 41, I was kind of devastated. I was like, oh, shit, like oh, yeah. I'm a demographic. Yeah. In, in Too Deep was definitely like number four on TRL at one point. <laughs> oh, man. Well, here we are at that point in the podcast about Moonstruck where we're going to we're going to start talking about Moonstruck. Right. <laughs> um this is Moonstruck from 1987. It was written by one John Patrick Shanley, directed by Norman Jewison. It stars Cher, Nick Cage, Olympia Dukakis, and some others whose names I can't just remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I, you know, I, I Dan, I'm going to maybe let you go first here because I think you're going to have the, the shortest answer. But what was your previous relationship with Moonstruck and also with the writer John Patrick Shanley? with opera like like what what's your like what are you what baggage are you kind of going into this movie with so when in the group chat when jared posed to me hey dan what's your background with opera i sent him a gif of bugs bunny in a viking hat on top of a big ox and that was about my background with opera i mean honestly that's a good start (laughs) (laughs) my friend bobby who is like a doing extremely well for himself in the opera world, uh, Babatunde Akinbobogye, he's kind of internet famous now. Uh, that was his introduction to opera, and he tells people that all the time, was Bugs Bunny cartoons. Like, that's how <laughs> he learned about it and how he kind of got into it. So I mean, it's kind of like how opera. the guy who played... Yeah, it's like the guy who played Elvis said he just knew Lilo and Stitch. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that. But yeah, uh, a pretty blind, pretty green to all... I didn't know the name uh, John Packlett. John Patrick Shanley, like I had to look up and read it so I could say it out quickly. 
Um, didn't know anything about Moonstruck. I even texted my mom after I was like, wait, maybe my mom hated Cher and that's why I couldn't listen to Cher. So I was like, did we, were we an anti-Cher household? Is that why I didn't know anything about it? She's like, no, nah, I just didn't care about Cher. I'm like, oh, okay. No care for Cher. Um, yeah, I knew nothing about this film. So I went in. Honestly, I thought this was going to be a musical, given the bones of it. I was like waiting for a, uh, a musical number to kick out at one point, which will be my main critique of this film. It needed Cher to sing. <laughs> How are you going to have Cher in a movie and not have her sing? But yeah, I came in pretty much blind, which uh, like what Jared was talking about, like that's sort of the fun of this podcast where we're forcing each other to watch things that we normally wouldn't be exposed to. So I was uh, happy to be able to do that. Excellent. What about you, Britta? Well, like, do you remember the first time you saw Moonstruck and kind of what, what the context was? I legitimately don't remember the first time I saw Moonstruck. I think it was, uh, it's one of my mom's favorite movies. So I yeah. think it might've been, I know I probably saw it in around junior high. I would imagine we probably went to Blockbuster or the warehouse and my mom was probably just like, oh, this is a really good movie. We should watch this. But I loved it. Like, I remember, like, it quickly became one of my favorite movies. And it was just something that I was, like, always kind of watching, um, you know, like, every couple of years at least. I don't remember anything about watching it for the first time, except that I do remember that I had an immediate and very strong crush on Nicolas Cage <laughs> in oh, yeah. this movie as, like, a 13-year-old girl or however old I was when I saw it, just being like, oh, my God, this guy. He threw the table over and he has so much chest hair. Like, I, <laughs> I remember having a very strong reaction to him particularly. <laughs> that makes uh, a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but, if it helps, a 31-year-old man also had a very strong reaction oh. to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then with uh, John Patrick Shanley, um, I don't even think I knew he wrote plays until Jared started like reading and directing them uh, in college. Um, I knew that he'd written Moonstruck. I knew that he'd written Joe versus the Volcano. For some reason, I knew that. Because I remember when you introduced me to, like, I want to say it was maybe Danny in the Deep Blue Sea, like some kind of John Patrick Shanley. And I was like, the guy that wrote Joe versus the Volcano? <laughs> like, that was my <laughs> reference point. And Moonstruck, obviously. Um, but I read a lot of his plays through your recommendation and also through the ones that you were producing and some of the ones that were being produced in San Diego at the time. Um, yeah. so I've, you know, I've seen, yeah, your production of Danny and the Deep Blue Sea, uh, that you starred in and was awesome. And I AD'd that, I think, right? Didn't I? AD'd? I think you AD'd The Wild Goose. Okay. Then The Wild Goose is another one. Yeah. We saw that production of Sailor Song that was playing in a, um, theater company in, in San Diego. And it was just incredible. I love that play. Um, and obviously Doubt. I can't believe we got this far into a conversation about John Patrick Shanley without mentioning Doubt. It's probably his most famous work. But yeah, big fan of the man. Um, whenever he puts out anything new, I try to read it or see it. Um, and yeah, love him. Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is I, as far as my previous relationship with like the author of something that we're talking about, like as far as like how well. I know their work and everything. This is probably the most extreme that we've done on the podcast. Like, uh, okay. So, well, first of all, I'm pretty, I'm pretty damn sure now that we've been talking about it so much that, yeah, I watched this with you for the first time when we were like 16, Brit. I'm pretty sure probably you showed me Moonstruck 
and maybe even when we, we watched it with your mom even like i i just i just know we watched it together and then i probably didn't think about it much at all for years after that until i started encountering john patrick shanley's plays and i put two and two together that he wrote it but yeah uh we were talking about this before we started recording like Brit- Britta and I, when we first met, we just immediately started watching a shitload of movies together. I remember the very first time we hung out, we watched American Psycho. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was like, Oh man, this girl's laughing a lot at American Psycho. She <laughs> must be so cool. That was like and, your friendship uh, litmus test back then was to like, if see if someone was cool, you'd show them American Psycho yeah. and see how they yeah, reacted. I, yeah. I, the funny thing is I probably have to- told this exact same story on the Wicker Man podcast because I also made <laughs> watch American Psycho the first time we hung out. And we're, we're all still friends. So that's good. Yeah. Um, I need to get uh, a freaky movie to test my friendships out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, John Patrick Shanley as a writer, I don't think that there is another living author that I've delved more deeply into the work of. Um, so... Uh, there's a poster behind me right there. That's the wild goose that I directed Aww. that Britta assistant directed right there. Um, I directed his, his very first play called welcome to the moon with a bunch of friends in college. And I directed the wild goose twice uh, with similar casts, kind of similar staging, but different times. I starred in Danny and the deep blue sea that Britta mentioned that we, that I also mentioned on the um, before sunset with, on the Before Sunrise podcast, like also with uh, with friend of the pod Kate, uh, we did that one together. I was in his play Savage in Limbo twice, like a decade apart. And in between that, I've like I've made attempts to direct some of his other plays that didn't quite get off the ground for one one reason or another. I've read everything he's done. I've seen all of his movies. I've corresponded with him here and there because he's just really gracious with that. Like, Hey, I'm doing your play, the wild goose, you know, what, what advice do you have? And you know, his response is like, make sure they play it straight. Also, I think you're like the third person to ever direct the wild goose. And I was like, Oh wow. Very, it's very obscure, short, absurdist play. It's like a really weird one. It's like 45 minutes long. It's theater, the absurd it's, it's marvelous. And yeah, uh, I've I, every once in a while I'll just email him or Facebook message him something, and he like usually responds, even if it's like really like terse, not terse, but like but but very um, just brief. Yeah. Like after after the Academy Awards in two thousand eight, uh, I just messaged him. You should have won, and he messaged back, "Thanks." <laughs> <laughs> he should have won. He should have. He, he should have won Best Adapted Screenplay for for Doubt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but but Doubt won the Pulitzer Prize and the Tony Award. He already had an Academy Award for Moonstruck. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he's he's one of my favorite writers. This movie is not exactly like a perfect example of why I like his writing, but this is more of like his softest edge mm. is Moonstruck, I would say. And uh, but I do love this movie a whole lot for a lot of other reasons. Um, I think starting with the performances. So I know we want to, we, we got to talk about cage. I know we got to talk about share. I know you specifically wanted to talk about share and like what her winning an Oscar for this means. So why don't you take it away on that? Oh, sure. Her acting career pre this was pr- like not much of anything at all. I'm going to pull up her IMDB just to like make sure, but she had a really interesting career because she hadn't done that much in film and then she did a little bit after this and kind of around it and then she 
never really did a movie that was as critically acclaimed as this one um, after yeah. this. And a lot of people at the time when she did win that Oscar were, uh, you know, kind of like of the opinion that she didn't deserve it. Um, you know, kind of how people were about like Marissa Tomei winning for My Cousin Vinny, which is also a really great comedic performance. So people need to just like stop, you know, being snobs about that stuff. But yeah, I'm looking at her IMDb. Yeah, she. I mean, so previous to this, she was in Silkwood, um, written by Nora Ephron, directed by Mike Nichols. Her and Meryl Streep were both nominated for Oscars for Silkwood yeah. a few years before Moonstruck. Um, she was I, right before Moonstruck. She was in The Witches of Eastwick, uh, which cool. I love. Like a not a guilty pleasure. I'm not. I don't feel guilty about it at all. But it's a little bit of a silly movie. But George Miller, Jack Nicholson, Cher, Michelle Pfeiffer, Susan Sarandon. My God. Yeah. What what an amazing uh uh just you know cast and and creative crew on the Witches of Eastwick. But yeah, I I, I also um kind of looked into some of the biggest backlash of like share winning that year. And I, I'm struggling to remember who else was nominated and for what, but there's definitely that air of like Cher is not that serious of an actor, and this is not that serious of a movie. Mm. Uh yeah, because now that I think of it, like, you know, people are pretty uh, aware that, like, horror films and comedy films in particular have a uphill battle being taken, like, seriously by the Academy. But, like, rom-coms, too, now that I think of it. I mean, I guess you can put rom-coms under uh, comedy in general. But, like, I can't think of too, too many huge rom-coms that were cleaning up at the Oscars or getting a lot of attention. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of and- one, but I can't. The interesting thing about uh, her career, too, is that, like, really after Moonstruck, she just didn't really do much. Like, she was guest starred on some TV shows. Um, I think she, she, you know, she had big roles in, like, Mermaids, which was, you know, not a huge movie. Other than that, after that, it was kind of just like, you know, she was in, like, burlesque and, like, movies that were a little bit, like, sillier, you know, kind of, like, B-movie things that, like, weren't taken as seriously. So it's kind of interesting that she didn't really do anything that was as critically acclaimed ever after Moonstruck. And I think she'd been interviewed about that, and uh, she just kind of said that she'd lost interest in acting, (laughs) like, you know, as, like, a major career choice and, like, a major career path for her. Must be nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she had like a big resurgence. Yeah, as she a had pop a huge, star in, yeah, the, huge in the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and she kind of kind of settled into like her role as like the elder statesman of that like sort of just a little bit left of center um, lady pop icon, where you know, she's a little bit dangerous, extremely talented, but like you know, uh, not not quite like the bubblegum image. Like, I definitely see her as a progenitor to Madonna and Lady Gaga and, like, you know, people of that ilk. And she's kind of, like, owned that quite a bit. And, like, both Madonna and Lady Gaga both have, have, you know, also, like, taken that stab into acting and, you know, did pretty pretty good jobs kind of, like, around those particular, that particular point in each respective career. And I definitely see Cher as, like, a little bit of a blueprint for, like, that sort of career. Mm-hmm. But she's really good in this movie. Like, I think yeah, she's great. if she wasn't so damn watchable <laughs> and, like, just engaging and, like, engaged, uh, for uh, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> like, I don't think this movie even comes close to working. Dan, like, who, what did you think of, like, Cher as an actor before watching this movie? 
before watching this movie, I didn't know that yeah. she acted like she she <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you know, I I think I knew she was in burlesque, but like I figured it was the same in the same vein that like she was more of a singer that was just on camera. Uh, so not really acting. It's more like, oh, well, this is like, you know, a, a filmed musical. We need people with that talent. Like, you know, they got to have a few lines just to be in it. But mostly we want them as a singer. So like I never really thought of her as like a straight actor that's doing or that's actually like carrying a script or something like that. Um, I'm trying to think of someone that that would be equivalent to um, and just basically any pop star that like pops up in a movie for yeah, like stunt casting, basically. Yeah, yeah, stunt yeah. casting essentially. Yeah. Not like yeah, which is funny because yeah, if, if my idea is like the stuff that she did after Moonstruck, that's after she won an actual Oscar, so it was clearly taken seriously. Yeah, after two, after like two nominations, one win, and then eh, acting's not for me. <laughs> what the fuck? Must be nice. Yeah. Man, you know what? This movie, like, it, it really like strikes me pretty hard every time I watch it. That like even twenty three year old Nicolas Cage was mm-hmm. already out there making these bold, weird, inspired choices. You know, like him and John Patrick Shanley together is like a really, really killer combination. Like um, the guy who starred in J.P. Shan, as I know him, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> J.P. Shan's movies and plays in the early 80s or they were just constantly working together it was john turturro and i totally see him in cage it was like in like Mm. that same ilk of like slightly oddball but still like leading man types that really make these weird bold big choices and john turturro he gets taken pretty seriously but it's always like Man, every time we talk about Nicolas Cage, we have to talk about like cage rage and like the meme (laughs) and stuff. And it like always strikes me as like, this is such a good early example of him already making those big, like bold choices and like how like that really started so early for him. What what's your take on on Nicolas Cage's performance in this movie, Britta? Well, I mean, I love it. I'm a huge fan of just like big bold unhinged choices and like fully committing and i think you can never say that nick cage didn't fully commit to whatever he was doing i i love an actor that just like throws it at the wall and sees if it sticks uh and it really works in this case i think in this movie it's like perfect this movie is so it's as we'll get to it's very operatic the story is just like it's these huge operatic emotions so that kind of a performance just like fits perfectly i absolutely love him in this i couldn't picture anyone else in that role uh even though uh it was actually really hard for him to get cast i don't know if we're going to talk about that a little bit later or if we should oh no go for it but um yeah they um he was originally perceived as a little too young to be in that role uh and he hadn't had like that much uh like leading man experience i guess at this point he was only 23 as you said when they filmed it uh and they originally wanted to cast peter gallagher who he was like, he's like kind of a similar look, like dark hair, uh, blue eyes. He was in like, while you were sleeping, he was always like the romantic comedy love interest in like so many nineties rom-coms. Um, do you guys know who he is or do you yeah, he's like the dad on Google the it real quick? Yeah. The dad. Yeah, on the yeah, yeah. There you go. So, um, they originally, that was like kind of who the producers had like decided on. And he and cage had both done like screen tests, they really wanted to go with Peter Gallagher and then Cher basically said she wouldn't do it if they didn't go with Nicolas Cage. Like she really like put her neck out for his casting. And I think that was the right thing to do. 
because they have such great chemistry. So. Yeah, she had seen him and Peggy Sue got married. Mm. And uh, basically it was like they had to court her quite a bit to get her to agree to be in the movie to begin with. And then when when she realized that she kind of had them kind of under her thumb, she was like, yeah, cast cast Nick Cage or uh, I'm not going to be in the movie. And so they cast Nick Cage. What, what I love is then the very next film is Vampire's Kiss, which I think <laughs> is like the iconic Cage Rage like scene is him doing the alphabet. Oh, yeah. Just like yeah. like Raising Arizona, Moonstruck and Vampire's Kiss all coming out within like less than two years of each other. Yeah, that that meme began early. Before it spiraled uh, out of control for a while. Yeah. How, is this one of the best Nick Cage performances? I think so. See, it's it's hard to it's hard to say because like I almost split him into like two different eras because I would want to say Pig or Mandy, but they're like entirely mm-hmm. different performances and what he's doing in his early 20s. I love him in adaptation too. Yeah. I, I mean, great. you could legitimately, he's almost like, like two or three different actors in one man, you know? <laughs> so if you're like looking at different kinds of cage performances for like this specific kind, I feel like this is one of his best. Where he's like, yeah. I, yeah. 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 Yeah, and then there's the more like you know contemplative kind of mature stuff that that Dan's talking about. But then there's also like Nick Cage, the action star. Yeah, like, like I'm mm. gonna steal the Declaration of Independence yeah. kind of. <laughs> yeah, Nick Cage. but also yeah. like also like Gone in sixty seconds and Con Air and The Rock and Face Off and everything. Mm. I mean, shit, um, making it even dumber. Uh, have you guys seen Prisoners of the Ghost Land? No. Oh, it's no. so stupid. I love it. Jesus. <laughs> fully in on it i think it's by the director who made love exposure if that helps with the tone. oh that's very interesting i'm pretty yeah huh. yeah it is the same i'm gonna guy. have to look into that wow have, have either of you seen the the Werner herzog remake of bad lieutenant no no during nick cage oh okay, my look. god that's one of the better like meme uh <laughs> sort of nick, nick cage performances yeah him and herzog together uh have either of you seen the original bad lieutenant no okay <laughs> I, I i would love to do both bad lieutenants on the pod and and uh just like try to de- decide which one is more fucking off the wall so the first <laughs> one is is abel ferreira directing Harvey Keitel. Oh. Um, like as this like corrupt cop who's like up to his ass in debt, who's going to like <laughs> excuse me, who's basically like gonna go to jail if he doesn't continue to just embezzle more money and like and, and he he's just like the worst person alive. And that movie is like super ex- exploitative and you know pulpy and and fucked up and stuff, but then Herzog and Cage remade it like 15 years later and just made it their mission to just take take it to even further extremes. And that's such a fun movie. That's my favorite. I, I think that's the best Cage performances in Bad Lieutenant. <laughs> uh, you just have to pick you the obscure one, don't you? <laughs> yeah, like these these like obscure people in it, like <laughs> Val Kilmer and Val Kilmer and uh, you know Exhibit and Brad Dorif and Michael Shannon and Jennifer Coolidge and Eva Mendez <laughs> and like this unknown director Werner Herzog. Just, yeah, these these slight you know real marginal types. Yeah, Nicolas Cage like he he yeah he he needs a, a little like a handout or two. He's not so so, so famous, right? Uh, I'm just I'm just fucking with you. 
Well, okay. I think we need to talk about opera. Like that's, that's why you're here, Britta. <laughs> that is. Um, yeah. So I need to know, like, it seems the consensus is, and I think I've heard you back this up before, is that Moonstruck gets opera right when many, many other movies or kind of, you know, kind of points of reference in pop culture sort of uh, make it into like a caricature, like satirize it or down downplay opera's significance in one way or another. So like, what is it about Moonstruck that that actually gets opera right? I would say that it's probably just the fact that John Patrick Shanley really loves opera. Like we know that he's a huge fan um, and you can really feel that that love uh, in the script. You know, you can it's the same thing with like, you know, Peter Schaefer and Amadeus. So you can tell that Peter Schaefer is like a classical music freak and that he thinks about it, talks about it all the time. Like you can just feel that love and appreciation come through in the writing. And it's a really great representation of like somebody who, you know, Nic- Nicholas Cage's character, somebody that really loves opera and the spirit of the whole movie very much has the spirit of a really great, like a really great, like comedic opera, like a from like the 19th century, like a like Rossini or some Puccini, Donizetti, like kind of opera where it's like actually like lighter and funnier and about romance. Like I'm thinking of like Elixir of Love or uh like some of the like Cenerentola, like just these um operas where it's like um like Don Pasquale, something where it's like lighter and it's about romance and it's about love. Uh La Boheme actually is not like that for most of the opera, which is very interesting that he chooses La Boheme as really the only the only operatic music you hear in this movie is from La Boheme. And um, it's interesting that he chose La Boheme, probably just because it's maybe the most well-known opera of all time. It's definitely among the like top three most performed of like any opera houses in the world. It's a total classic. But it is a tragedy. It's like a love story that has a tragedy at the end of it. There are comedic elements, but it's the ending is like really tragic. And um, much of the opera is has that feeling but there is also a good amount of comedy in like the first couple acts mostly through um not the main characters that we see in moonstruck like in the scenes that we see but there's two side characters uh musetta and marcello that have kind of an on off thing and that's a little bit more representative of the spirit of moonstruck i think where it's like funnier it's more like you'll do really stupid things for love you'll make a fool out of yourself for love but like they have to be together in the end and weirdly, I mean, I guess not weirdly, probably appropriately, the tune that you hear the most in this movie is Musetta's Waltz, which is the the main song from, or the main aria from that character, Musetta, that's in the more happy, happy, although they fight a lot, uh, romantic relationship between two characters where they both survive till the end and presumably will be together. So, yeah. I, this this now ha- has me wondering, like, because especially early cinema and a lot of 20th century cinema, like it's no stranger to adding music to films with the musical, which I think is a very American form of film. Like why didn't opera get the same treatment or reach the same, or why is it, did it not translate as easily over into cinema when it, on paper, it seems like something pretty natural to move over. To well, cinema. 
Early days, I mean, there were a lot of operatic adaptations, like in uh, earlier days of cinema. I just don't think it's stuck for like whatever reason. I mean, even as far as like into the 1950s and 60s, there were televised versions of Minotti's operas. Um, he was a you know 20th century um, American uh, Italian American composer. And he wrote things like um, A Mall in the Night Visitors, um, The Consul, The Medium. And these were things that were actually written for television, like NBC oh. broadcast all of them. So I feel like there was some interest, but it just, over time, it, you know, kind of died away for whatever reason, taste changing, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, by the time, you know, talkies were, you know, like a real big thing, like that bridge between opera and kind of what we know as like modern musical theater was already like well well oiled right mm. like even like like gilbert and sullivan like predate like talking motion pictures by like 30 years or something like yeah. I, th- I don't think either one of them lived very far into the 20th century if at all right yeah. and uh so like i mean like vaudeville had already like really like in america really replaced like european opera as like the popular form of music theater. I mean, I personally think, and this is um, something that I know, Jared, you've read this idea too, that like opera really is like a European art form and like vaudeville and musical theater were more the American art forms. And since film is such an American art form, I feel like that might be kind of the reason why. I don't think opera ever really had quite the toehold here that it had in like you know italy and germany mm. where they have like you know in germany they have state-sponsored opera like mm. we would never have anything like that here so i think i think it does have something to do with american culture and how entrenched that is just in like film you know well i do wonder that too with like you know the u.s where we have such a you know we pat ourselves on the back so hard with at least claiming that we have no like real class distinctions and everyone can rise up to the top and stuff like that and opera at least in american eyes it seemed like as such a upper class elite form of art yeah. and then i was wondering that too like it's you know it's the mid late 80s and these are definitely very working class people like is it realistic to think that they could just buy tickets to the opera in new york oh absolutely oh. yeah 100% i i I don't even know how to talk about like a lot of this without just sounding like a totally pretentious asshole where like no one's going to know what I'm talking about unless they're also another like classical music weirdo. Talk to me. <laughs> I have no oh, idea yeah. what's going on. No, but um, <laughs> the Met and most major opera houses in America uh, from like the 80s on and before then really too were really trying to shed that sort of perception of like this is an unattainable art unless you're like you know blue blood like upper crust super rich la opera which is uh the you know the opera company that i'm closest to i'm actually going to go see barber of seville at lao tomorrow night oh wow um they are constantly you know trying to get new people in and they're always saying like you don't need to dress up to go to the opera just come we have like cheaper tickets the Met would have always had like rush tickets and um, cheaper tickets. Them they might have had an obstructed view. They did have really good seats, which made me <laughs> think that like Nick Cage probably doesn't spend any money. But I'm guessing the bakery is kind of successful. So yeah. I'm guessing he whatever savings he had, he probably blew it on like the new suit and really nice tickets and like mm. yeah. Um, but yeah, well, I think people can afford it. 
like I think there's plenty of evidence in this movie that the characters are all pretty well off, like yeah. including Nick Cage. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the he's the owner of that bakery, and actually, like you, it, it, it's it's implied that him and his brother kind of own it together, and we see him, you know, dining fine and mm, um, you know traveling and, and that sort of thing. And then we we know that Cher's family is like rich, yeah, like Cher's the the, prof- like- the prof- yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. That is like ripping people off, you know, like with this plumbing business. So they're, they're <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they also even like they make a special point of like the professor guy when he like sees where they live. It's like, yeah. wait, you own this whole house? Like they uh-huh. they own like a whole ass brownstone in man in uh in uh where are they in, in like nicer part of God, where where are they're I don't not know in where Brooklyn. They are. I thought they were no. in Brooklyn. Are they? No. I don't okay, know. Well, maybe owning a big, like maybe o- maybe owning a big ass house in the middle of Brooklyn in 1988 isn't that impressive. Maybe it is. I mean, <laughs> the movie makes it seem seem that way. I the please, speaking of the plumbing scene, I take offense to the the wasp slander going on in that scene. <laughs> the two characters that are coded as like English, Irish, whatever, like you know, white, white, like milk white. They seem like the biggest dorks and the most naive nerds in the planet. And just because we are doesn't mean you need to put that on screen <laughs> man these these are these are real italian americans like he's a plumber and uh <laughs> i was thinking it's just like straight up mario and luigi running up yeah, to how come the brothers own the bakery and not the plumbing business that doesn't yeah. make sense to me yeah what what gives but no you know i do think that there's like a, a opera is like such well opera and just singing is like such a source of pride for Italian people. And like, this is a family that's still like so connected to the old country. Like, like we find out that like Cosmo's dad, who's like pretty elderly in there, like his, his parents, like we see the photos of his parents. So like, you know, they, they, they have like a direct line back to the old country with like their family there. And uh, I could totally see how, like folks that are in that position where like they're still so connected to their roots would like, you know, like just, just John Patrick Shanley, who's not Italian and like Norman Jewison, who is not Italian and Cher, who's not Italian and Olympia Dukakis, who's not Italian and Nick Cage, who's like kind of Italian, but he sort of like rejects it. Like I I could totally see like opera being like a, a grounding thing where it's like, let's inject this movie with something very Italian. Right. And like, even in that sense, it's like, it's not the American side of the Italian American that's taking pride in it. It is the Italian side. Mm. Wait, I just realized Cher's not even born from New York. Why did I think she was East Coast? Because she's a really good actor. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I might do it. <laughs> yeah, is she from LA? Like, is she? Um... She's from El Centro. Oh, wow. So like, that's the Boof middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, did not know that. Wow. Ooh, there's nothing in El Centro. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> yeah shares roots i guess um <laughs> yeah okay so one thing about this movie that that has always struck me as like not exactly off-putting but a little off kilter is like just how flippant it is about marriage about infidelity about like kind of taking these institutions like seriously I'm wondering, like, if, if is it just a kind of a cultural thing or is like this movie, it, is this movie sort of an odd bird in that way? I feel like that might almost be an opera thing because so many operas, like especially like the romantic, like comedic operas um, that I was like saying that Moonstruck is like closer in tone to 
people are just like constantly like, oh, I was engaged to this person, but now I'm going to, you know, I'm in love with this person or they're, you know, in love with somebody, but somebody's pining after them from afar and then they finally get them in the end. And there's a lot of like, it's like Shakespeare, you know, there's a lot of like yeah. couple and like partner, uh, you know, hopping basically. And it's all for like comedic effect in a way, you know, it's like this, you know, kind of like, just sort of like a lot of like misunderstandings and silliness, but everyone ends up with the right person in the end. You know, I, I was getting those kinds of vibes. Mm -hmm. which yeah, is even what early in the movie, the, they asked like, Oh, do you love him? She's like, well, no, it's like, share. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> you have to love him. That's the rules. You're in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but she, she just hasn't met his brother yet. Oh, because, well, because she's an old hag of 37. Yeah. Ancient. <laughs> you know? Ugh, who's 37? <laughs> I'll never be 37. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh, I'm very close to it. And then Brit like, is a little closer, though. Mm -hmm. They have a whole you know, scene closer. where they essentially age her down, where they're like, let's get rid of those ancient grays. Yeah. You're 37. And I love that, like, the hairdresser is like, I've been waiting years to take out the gray. I'm like, how <laughs> early did she go gray? She's only no. 37 and, like, half I mean, her hair is white. She's, she's a chair. widow. She I started getting grays when I was, like, 23, 24. Mm -hmm. You had to use just for men. No, it's not really that noticeable. Only in certain lights on the side of my hair. Unfortunately, it's like stalled since then. But yeah, I mean, I could. I'm, I mean, I know people that went bald at like nineteen. So why to me? Can't women go gray early too. Oh yeah, I went. I went bald at like yeah, like nineteen. Hmm. Maybe maybe started a little earlier. Got noticeable around nineteen. Um, I, I started getting grays like immediately uh, upon grad school. <laughs> I, I think the two things might have been related when I was like 27, 28. I was just like, oh my God. Like it was seriously like just when things started to get insane. So when I noticed my first gray hair. So. <laughs> I, I have like a little bit that comes out here when my beard gets a little longer. Uh, and it's definitely getting worse now that I have kids. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so yeah, 37, that much gray. Not out of the not out of, out of the realm of reality. But a problem but, yeah. solved in this movie. Well, I mean, she's going to the opera. She has to look her best. Mm, that's true. And with Nick like Cage. Harry Nick Cage. Yeah. Great arms. Yeah. Great, great everything, that's really. Cool. Like, well, like in that first hand. scene. <laughs> <laughs> is that okay? So I was wondering. <laughs> Everyone has their Achilles heel. I texted Jared this. I'm like, is the missing hand like an opera reference of some sort? Is he supposed to signify some like classic character? Or they just lopped his hand off for fun. Not that I know of. I can't think of any characters in opera that are like missing a hand or a Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Somebody should turn that into an Hope actual opera. Out, that would that would be amazing. Um, oh man, <laughs> yeah. I was wondering that too because like even his mannerisms and like his big oh, like his big introduction scene where like he goes the full on like they took my hand, he took my bride. <laughs> like it's very very much like the like what I think of as like a you know kind of overcooked big opera gesture. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. If Nick Cage, I mean, I don't know, maybe he can sing, but if Nick Cage could sing, he would have made an an excellent actor in the world of opera. Oh, uh, I don't. Yeah. Has anyone heard him try and sing? Has he ever tried to sing in a movie? No, I no think idea. of it. No, I, I, I can't recall. And that leads me to believe that he probably isn't that great because he would have otherwise. <laughs> yeah, if even Nick Cage yeah. is like, mm, I don't know if I can do this, guys. Yeah, he wouldn't have so, kept yeah. that from us if he could. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no something, yeah, something Nick Cage like isn't willing to try. 
<laughs> yeah, something's uh, there. But yeah, going back to the whole like infidelity and how flippant it is about it, I did think that was kind of what was an aberration, I guess, or a weird tick of the movie. Because like I, you know, as I said, I'm not familiar with opera, but I am familiar with pop culture references to Italian families, which is the only exposure to New York Italian families I have. Like everyone loves Raymond comes to mind. <laughs> like that's like my source text for how Italian American families in New York are. But like. And, and they mention it at the back end, too, where it's like it's a cliche in like uh, tropes of Italian-American families in media where it's like, oh, it's all about the family, like the family sticks together. Like we, you know, we back each other no matter what. And I'm like, I feel like rampant infidelity kind of goes against that. But hey, what do I know? I guess to me, it really did just feel like kind of a, I don't know, like I, that's something that I think is really common in like Shakespearean comedies. Would you say that's right, Jared? Where like. It's just not taken as seriously. It just had similar vibes yeah. to me. Where like I feel like we're not meant to like take it that seriously, or like that this is you know see it like it would be presented in the real world because this is such an emotionally heightened reality in this movie. Yeah, but yeah, I was telling Jared too that like I was expecting with all the uh, the symbolism of like moons and wolves, I was like. <laughs> Is is a werewolf <laughs> gonna pop out in this movie? Like, please uh, tell me no. <laughs> I wish. Oh my god. The movie. This I movie mean, was when when Shanley wrote it. This movie was called <laughs> "The Wolf and the Bride." Right. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like a very John Patrick Shanley title, and someone really glad uh, they didn't stick with that. That was. <laughs> yeah, we would not be sitting here having this mm -hmm. conversation if this movie no had remained. The wolf the and the bride. That's so funny. Although I did like, I get uh, with the younger couple, where I with Cher's whole love triangle. Like I'm, I'm totally, I'm picking up that that they're you know they're they're heightening everything. Everything's you know a bit of a sillier world than real New York. Uh, but like the 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 parents' infidelity just made me sad as like a, a contrast to it. And like him going around with the other woman at the opera and like their conversation at the very end where when I forget what the mom says, it's like something very short. It's just like, don't do it again or cut it out or something that's like it's understood. And like, that just made me sad. Not like, ah, ha, ha, silly family. I mean, what does she say? She says, I want you to stop seeing her. And yeah, they had yeah. like directly addressed the fact that she knew he was cheating. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely more serious. I I felt like I didn't. You know, and she, and she plays it so well. Like Olivia Dukakis really plays. Like, see the pain in her face and hear it in her voice, and it does feel very grounded. But I feel like through some of the things he's doing, you can really tell that he's sorry. You know, um, and their little conversation after that, where you know he says that he feels like his life is for nothing, and she says like your life isn't for nothing. You know that she loves mm -hmm. him, mm -hmm. gives it a little bit of gravity, kind of some resolution, but also. I didn't get the impression that he had really committed adultery. Like, I, I felt like he'd taken this woman on some dates. Uh, he had like, consummated the abuse. Yeah, I don't know that he did. Like, it seemed like he'd just been taking her to dinner and, like, bought her gifts, which is still terrible. Like, you yeah. shouldn't do that, obviously. But I, I got the feeling that it was more he was just, like, you know, taking her out and kind of, like, you know, having this, like, idea of himself as this man who can still get women and, like, take them on the town but I don't know that there was any actual, like, you know, cheating going on. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, that comes up twice where it's like, hey, why do men chase women? Yeah. And it's like, because it's because it, it, it explicitly brought up twice. I'm like, yeah. oh, that must yeah. be like a major theme here going on. Yeah. 
why why do men chase women? Do we want to talk about that? I feel like there's a pretty <laughs> clear answer to it. Like, why is that? How's that a question? I mean, to be cool, that's the real answer, right? I mean, yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, on, I always wonder, to impress other men, you know, to impress <laughs> other men, which uh, which is why the gay community is like so like locked into their lifestyle. It's like, man. Men chasing men to impress other men. Chase men. <laughs> it's just everyone's like, let's chase each other. This is going to be so much fun. Um, well, I, and I wondered, what, what did you guys think? Where when they meant chase, did they meant looking outside of their partnership or just going after women in general? I think I thought just going after women, like always trying to pursue, like you know, having, having that pursuit. Yeah, like even if they don't succeed. Just that, like, they're always, like, looking, you know? Yeah, I thought that, like, the to escape death or to escape fear of death, I'm like, we're going to need to we're gonna need to flesh that one out a little bit. Like, maybe I can get on board with that theory. But they're just kind of like, yeah, to escape death. As if it's just well, like, well, duh, everyone knows that. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the, this movie is, like, very obsessed with death, right? Like, there's a, for, for a, a fairly light romantic comedy, like, the movie does begin with an image of a corpse and a conversation about mm-hmm. it. And, um, you know, we have dead characters looming large in the movie. I do think that there is, like, that specter is, like, it does kind of drive a lot of the action and definitely, like, drives... Share. I don't. I don't. I don't remember the character name. So we're just gonna keep. We're just gonna. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh. I mean, it, it is like driving her decision making, right? Like it's. It's certainly driving not Ronnie, but Johnny is the older brother. Yeah. Uh. Like his decision making on like getting married and like he's chasing a woman because he needs to replace his mom soon, <laughs> and like there's all sorts of reasons, right? But I do think the like looming presence of death drives the answer to that in different ways for different characters. If I ever become single again, that's going to be my pickup line is like, hey, you want to help me stop thinking about death? <laughs> like, hey, my mom's about to die. I need a woman. Can we hang out? <laughs> it's too much fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, here's something that I really, really want to talk about that I think this movie is really cool is like, Man, this is a movie about Italian Americans where none of them are gangsters or criminals. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. The dad is a little shysty with his business practices. I guess, but I mean, he's not he's not breaking he's not breaking kneecaps. Yeah, I he's not like, uh, open. I didn't even notice that about the film until you like mentioned it and then I was like, "Oh yeah." Like I do feel like in film particularly like in TV, I don't know, you mentioned Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> I think there's like maybe a little bit more of just like a regular, you know, maybe like Italian-American family. But yeah, in movies, I would be hard-pressed to think of too many other films where it's like an Italian-American family and that is a huge part of the, you know, of the characterization and they're not in the mob. Like I I really couldn't think any of anything off the top of my head. Yeah. Can you think of anything like like a a popular movie where it's all about Italian American people and they're not gangsters? Godfather. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I actually can't think of any. Yeah, Goodfellas will come out a few uh, years later. Has Scorsese not made a single movie about Italian American people where they're not criminals? That's not that I can think. Yeah. Same. Damn. I mean, yeah, there's no Italians in Age of Innocence, I don't think. 
Was there ever a movie version of Everybody Loves Raymond? <laughs> I actually did watch. Uh, he made a movie called Somewhere in Queens. Uh, came out, I think, last year. Oh, and it just, it's I a century. Hmm? I bet the people was, were the characters in that Italian. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially Everyone Loves Raymond, the movie. And it stars oh. Ray Romano as a dad. So like, <laughs> it's the same bones. Mm. That's kind of sad if that's our only example other than Moonstruck. <laughs> just Ray <laughs> Romano and the shit yeah. he makes. <laughs> Okay, so I, I want to talk about uh, this is something that comes up so much and we kind of poke fun of it whenever we bring up something like this. But like New York City as a character, <laughs> is it just me or was New York presented as a far more romantic place in the 20th century compared to the 21st century? Why? What could what <laughs> what what two things changed? I don't remember. I, could a movie like this, like, could could a movie actually strike the tone that this movie does post 9-11? I don't think one has that I know of anyway. Yeah, definitely. It ha- it would have been inappropriate, I think, at least in the, the following years from it. But then, like, I feel like we are far enough away yeah. from it that, that it wouldn't be, like, like in I feel poor like, taste. I feel like it could happen. It just hasn't yet. And I me. personally, as a, a proud Chicagoan and therefore New Yorker, I don't find as much romanticism in the city of New York. I think it's just a more cramped kind of smelly version of Chicago, but that's my <laughs> opinion. Uh, so there are a few, like literally the only person that can get me to get romantic about New York is Scorsese. Th- those are the only films I've ever seen featuring New York where I'm like, Oh yeah, that's pretty cool out there. I might want to check it out. Personally, I thought this movie made New York look really romantic and like really uh, cute and I'm not a big fan of New York. I'm not like anti-New York, but I just, uh, I know I would freeze to death the first winter. uh, (laughs) Someone who's only lived in California and Georgia my whole life. So, um, and I, and I, I'm just, when I've been there, I've been like, "Eh, like, it's pretty, it's cool. There's a lot of like, it's very atmospheric, but, um, yeah, I, I, I don't get the whole, uh, you know, like the New York like romance when I'm actually there. But this movie like tricked me into thinking that it's something that exists, you know, where I'm like, oh, I want to go to New York after like watching it. And I don't ever really think that. So Also, Jared, to your point, I was joking around, I think, with my mom about this movie. She's like, oh, should I see it? And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty solid. You might like it. Um, and I realized, like, especially at like the end of the 20th century, particularly in the 80s and 90s, like. If you made a Hollywood movie where people fell in love, was it illegal to do it anywhere but New York City? Like, <laughs> could you do it anywhere else? Was maybe, that allowed? Maybe Paris. Yeah, maybe. That, that, that's what my mom says. Like, oh, I guess Paris is allowed. Or <laughs> Sweet Home Alabama, if you want to be racist and in love. L- London, right? <laughs> L- love Actually? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that oh, in London? We'll tell you a, a movie that I, I think I talked about in an earlier episode that did actually kind of give me... At least when you hear people who love New York and they talk about like the energy and like the dynamism of living there in like your early 20s and being like an artist and stuff like that. Um, actually, an example of that exact thing that just didn't land for me at all was Francis Ha, like just did mm-hmm. not get the romanticism of that whatsoever. But uh, John Cassavetti's Shadows absolutely did that for me, where I kind of for a hot second, I like, quote unquote, got it. But that was like the 50s, and these are like the Beats, which is an entirely different world than the New York we're looking at right now in the, the late 80s. But yeah. yeah, to your point, I don't know. I'm sure people have written entire like 
cultural studies DCs on this, on like New York cinema pre and post 9-11. But I think your uh, introductory thesis on like, we're not so romantic about New York right now for that reason. And I think there's probably some water or some uh, that theory holds a little bit of water here. Because I just thought of that. I think Spider-Man kind of romanticizes yeah. New York yeah. a little bit. The Sam Raimi one. Now that I'm thinking about it. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it does it in just like. Yeah. It, but it does it in such a like cheesy like. It's America, a throwback to 20th century like, stuff. Post 9-11 thing. It's. Uh, I don't know. Huh. Now I, now I am noodling about that. That That is interesting. At the same time that, like, Sleep is in Seattle, which is partly in New York. Um, Harry Met Sally, you know, Moonstruck right here. Um, these movies are, like, really sweet and gentle about New York. But at the same time, like, all nonfiction discourse about it makes it sound like it's, like, this decrepit, imploding place of crime and crack. Yeah. So which is it, Obama? Is somewhere. <laughs> The truth is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> now I'm actually I'm I'm like scrolling through films I've seen since 2011, and I'm looking for anything where New York, New York City specifically, is like. Yeah, what is uh what is the romantic city of choice right now though? If people in Hollywood fall in love, what city are they in? L.A. Ugh, I hate that. Yeah, it's even grosser. Yeah. Well, I also hated La La Land, so. I mean, it's. I don't know if I even believe LA. Is there a city these days that gets romanticized the way that New York did in the eighties and nineties on film? Is it like what's where does Hollywood uh, base their love stories these days? I don't really think that there there is a city like a specific city that is getting romanticized. Uh, Vancouver, honestly, yes, Vancouver. Vancouver. Well, everything is shot they're there, all, so they're all shot there. Um. I don't know. And I was always I was just thinking, like, when you were talking about how, you know, New York was romanticized in so many movies. I mean, I live in Los Angeles. I fucking love it here. I will die on the hill that like I love L.A. as a city. So many people hate it. And every movie that's set in L.A. is always like apologizing for itself for like being set in L.A. They have to argue like every movie in L.A. kind of presents it as a trash heap. And then if they do present the good side of it, they have to be like, oh, we know it sucks, but but look, there's some cool stuff. And that just like pisses me off because it's a fucking great city. Like I love I, it here. The food is incredible. You don't have to freeze half the year. It's beautiful. Like uh, I, I will die on this hill. I, I absolutely will. <laughs> I have definitely uh, I've definitely swallowed the pill down here in San Diego that this is the better of the two Southern California cities. But at least between New York and L.A., I can be convinced that L.A. has charm. New York, I just, I don't know. There's just something about, I think there's something about the arrogance of New York City, mm. where, what is it, uh, the fucking movie Gotti uh, with, uh, oh, what's his name? Oh, John Travolta. John Travolta. Just hoping, New York is the greatest fucking city in the world. Like, New Yorkers believe that. No one from, no one from any other city genuinely yeah. in their bones believes that. New York actually thinks they're the center of the universe. No one from L.A. believes that except for me, basically. <laughs> so. Yeah. Hey, hey, Dan, how did, um, how did like a, a nice kind of flyover, corn-fed, nice Midwestern boy like you kind of, you know, view this movie and all the kind of hard-talking New York Italians? Listen, 
the the longer I I don't live in the Midwest, the more I realize that I'm unshakably Midwestern. Like they're definitely so I haven't lived there now in 13 years. I left when I was 18 to go to college. And I thought I had done a good job of shaking most of the foibles of Midwesterners, but I'm now coming all the way back full circle and realizing you can't escape your raising. And especially the biggest one that I've noticed is like, I am uh, amenable, conflict diverse and polite to a fault. I will make my life harder and create problems for myself because I will not speak up about things or cause issues. And oh my God, is that not New York Italians. They are the opposite. They stress me out the whole time. Half these scenes, if like if one of those things happened to me, it would have been the most stressful and traumatizing thing that ever occurred to me in human interactions. And they just do it like five <laughs> times a day. I don't understand how they can like if someone had interaction with me like that at all, it's like, well, this relationship must be over because of the way we just had a conflict. Like there's no way that we can speak to each other like this and and be allowed to move forward. This is unforgivable. Like, why are we being so rude, everyone? I think some families are like, and this does have very much to do with culture. Like, some families are like yelling families, you know? And I'm not going to say that there's like an overabundance of yelling Italian families, but (laughs) I do think that's kind of a thing. Uh, Jared, I think you came from kind of a, a, like, I might not even be mad at you necessarily, but I'm just expressing my feelings at a very loud volume kind of family yeah yeah so. mexican families are like <laughs> yeah. that like any 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 maybe it's just any culture whose language is like a latin origin yeah. um <laughs> like is in is if it falls into that camp well that's the uh, yeah. like italian or not italian like the stereotype of irish people is simultaneously that we're loud violent and like obnoxious and also that we're deeply repressed and I'm like, I mean, the Midwestern uh, Irish, we're we're on the repressed side over here. We I mean, this... never bring up problems ever. Yeah, there's a big difference between Midwest Irish and Irish Bronx Irish. Irish that, yeah. or, well, no, New York Irish, like John Patrick yeah. Shanley. Like, mm-hmm. he is not Italian in the slightest. Like, he's the most Irish person. His name is John Patrick Shanley. <laughs> um, like, uh, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, he he writes about. I mean, he grew up in the Bronx, right? So, like, literally, like all of his neighbors are either Irish, Italian, or Jewish, and uh, so he he writes so 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 lovingly of Italian Americans, and I think he nails the cadence like perfectly because he grew up around it so much. But he has like full on other plays where all the characters are Italian and not Irish, but he most like he mostly is writing Irish New Yorkers. But whenever he pulls out. um, I do wonder when you're saying Irish, Italian, Jewish, this was coming to my mind, too, especially in the context of New York is like those are three subcultures in New York that like, quote unquote, had to earn the right to be white. Like all three of them now are very much considered in like American context as like white people. But like all three of them, when they first got here, they sure weren't. And I think it's kind of interesting that the three cultures are so intertwined, particularly on the East Coast, because like they were shunned as not properly wasp or uh, Western European in the correct way when they first got here. And they had to like somehow band together in their own communities to like ironically them become white people, which is a very funny thing with like just the history of race and the America's racial ideologies that like you can earn whiteness. Hmm. Yeah. They they all had to live in like, (laughs) (laughs) 
We haven't made it yet as Mexicans, Jared. Someday. <laughs> no, that's true. Maybe someday that's, we'll make that's it. That's true. Por- I don't know. Portions of us have a ways yeah. to go. Actually, it. I have made it because, uh, well, so have you. We're both very white passing Mexicans. You're passing. Yeah, yeah we're extremely passing. <laughs> but, yeah, my, uh, <laughs> my wife is the whitest person I've ever met. And so my kids are like very, very white. <laughs> But it's like I don't I don't have to worry about passing as I have family in Ireland right now. And like I'm I'm white as a driven snow. There's no like there's no contradiction in that. But a hundred years ago, it probably would be like you guys would like, no, yeah, I'm like a white Irish person, you yeah. know. I'm like I I'm Irish, but like, you know, but like a white one. Yeah, I'm Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty we much. Had a, we had we didn't have like an Irish Catholic president until the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I am one of those. We just people, na- we just you know? now have our second one. <laughs> never had an Italian American president that I know of. So. And we never will. <laughs> God, God willing. willing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't need the Vatican running uh, no. country, all right? Mm. That's one thing about uh Italians getting uh invited into whiteness is uh, you can't be racist against them. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> well, that is actually uh, that they led uh, the opening song, uh, That's Amore. I've always thought of that song as so goofily Italian that it almost sounds like a racist depiction of what Italians are like. Oh, yeah. Britta, <laughs> r- rant about the use of that, That's Amore in the opening credits. Like, it, it's, well, first off, you know, it invokes the moon and it invokes... You're not Britta. Britta. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> okay. Rant about the use of that's Amore in these opening credits. Uh, well, initially they wanted to use the uh, I, I can't remember if it was the overture for La Boheme if they if they wanted to use like an aria from La Boheme, but they wanted to use music from La Boheme in the like opening credits. And test audiences said that they hated it because they thought they were being tricked into seeing an art movie. <laughs> <laughs> the opera scared them. So they replaced it with That's Amore. Which I'm actually, yeah, which I'm actually fine with. I think it like really suits the mood of the film. Like I, I think it, it sets it up well. It's it's totally fine. But it's just funny that people were like, oh no, what have we gotten ourselves into? <laughs> it's just because there's opera playing. <laughs> well, all right, Dan, what would you recommend? to fans of Moonstruck or maybe oh, I, to anyone who someone who hates Moonstruck. I get to do recommendations this time. That's really kind. You do. Uh, I've decided Aww. that your your opinion is worthwhile. <laughs> um so as I usually do one before 92, one after 92 since I was born in 92, year 0, everyone should consider it as such. Uh, <laughs> BD is before 92 before Dan. Um <laughs> But uh, I thought of something was like, okay, we got a love triangle. And what would a love triangle feel like for me? What would a, a love triangle for me? It would be scary, stressful. I'd be out of my depth. People would be absolutely stomping all over me. Uh, and so I thought, what is the most stressful uh, love triangle out there? And that is something wild. Have you guys seen that one? Nope. Oh, the guy, who, uh, Jonathan Demi. So the guy who made Silence of the Lambs made a love triangle rom-com. And it's exactly as like twisted and fucked up, but still very, very funny as you would think. It's a, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy from Dumb and Dumber, not Jim Carrey, but the other guy. Jeff Daniels? Jeff Daniels, Jeff Daniels. Yeah. He's like this uh, New York yuppie. And uh, he's like, mar- or, well, the, the the film opens with him. Like he's got everything going for him. Like he's married with kids in Manhattan doing the whole nine yards, but he's like a little dissatisfied with it. And 
he runs into like basically a manic pixie dream girl dialed up to 40 and runs off with her and then just shit flies off the rails from there and it's like yeah if i were to fancy myself a debonair and try and and you know find a side piece and get involved in love triangles and all that stuff it would wind up this disastrously which <laughs> is that is why i don't do it not because of my moral fortitude but because i don't think i could pull it off <laughs> But since uh, 92, I went just right after 92 with, I thought, once again, of love circles, of specifically wanting someone else in the family, a movie I watched very recently that I actually talked to you guys, Age of Innocence would be a good uh, companion piece to this, especially with the New York of it all, with this, like, basically, it's what if the infidelity and the, well, what if the uh, the love circle and the, like, sort of breaking and bending of the rules was in a world where the the social norms were like incredibly strict instead of the way that it's portrayed here, which is like pretty loose, pretty open, but instead now it's strict and super repressed. And what, how do people behave in this way? And I think um, age of innocence is like very psychologically true or realistic in a way that is really hard to depict. And I really want to read the novel after seeing the film, but um, yeah, I would recommend those two. Excellent. Britta, what do you recommend to people who who like Moonstruck and want uh, some more? I would recommend maybe trying uh, La Boheme, um, giving that a shot. There's a really good pro shot of it from the Met, uh, the uh, Zeffirelli-directed uh, production. It's just like really sumptuous, incredibly romantic, just like the set pieces and the costuming gorgeous. And that is the one with uh, Renata Scotto and uh, and uh, Teresa Stratus uh, and um, Jose Carreras. It's uh, just a fantastic cast. And La Boheme is a, for people that aren't into opera, I'd say that's a really good like entryway into opera. It's really moving. The music is gorgeous. You've heard like, you know, at least 50% of the tunes just like existing in the world anyway. And it really does. La Boheme is a really good example of just that like grand sweeping romance of opera that they kind of show in Moonstruck. So I would say watch that production. I don't think it's streaming anywhere. I don't think you can buy a digital version of it. I think you have to buy the DVD. <laughs> online or well, like there are other methods of finding audiovisual content online oh that is true well how, however you find it more power to you <laughs> <laughs> i'd never dare no, no 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 i wouldn't do that that's not what i'm suggesting but any any way you can uh watching that that particular production is absolutely wonderful i can't recommend just like any production of lobo m because like you never know what modern opera stagings might do with it or if the cast is going to be garbage, but that one is really good. So, Britta, got any other recommendations? Uh, the So I'm not generally... I'm not going to say that I'm not generally a fan of romantic comedies. I am, but the ones that I like... I like a few romantic comedies, but the ones that I like, I love. And when they're done well, I just, I just fucking love them. And so we, I think we already mentioned it earlier, but um, another New York set romantic comedy that is just makes the city look beautiful and is just like such a joy to watch. Um, I was thinking of When Harry Met Sally, just such a classic. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you like Moonstruck, you're going to like When Harry Met Sally. 
if you have taste, I think you like both of those movies. <laughs> and they're both just like, you know, sharp and funny and well-written. That is, you know, a, just a fantastic Nora Ephron script. Um, the chemistry between the two leads is wonderful and also like fun side characters. So I feel like it's got some things in common. Uh, Big time. It would Around make the same good, time. Uh, yeah, yeah. It would make a really good double feature, I think. So. Hmm. I recently just read the screenplay when Harry met Sally hmm. and I've been reading a lot of screenplays recently um, and it is the best screenplay that I've read hmm. recently. Wow. I've And I've read a lot of really good ones. It, it's It's like perfect. See, like there's no like fat on mm -hmm. the bone yeah, at all. Absolutely. The problem, I agree about the script. I agree about all the dialogue. I just don't think Billy Crystal is interesting to look at at all. Like, I think he's anti charisma. So... What? I think he's so funny and charming in that. I like... and I'm mad that I everyone sees it. Everyone's enjoying it. They love Billy Crystal, and I just got nothing. And I wish. And like, I, I don't find it... him like attractive generally but in that movie i kind of do like i get it a little bit because he's so funny and he's just like so full of like energy and he's like really quick-witted which is really just nora efron but his delivery is great yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he should have played jerry on seinfeld <laughs> yeah no he very easily could have yeah 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 definitely okay i i have no recommendations Oh, I was going to say when Harry met Sally. Oh, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. It's like, I mean, that's like, that's like an obvious one. It's like, yeah. Oh, you like romantic comedies? Do you think you might like the yeah. best romantic yeah, Here, the other out a rom -com the like. 80s, Yeah. This um, is your chance to plug a rom. -com. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll do it on the pod uh, at some point because it's easily not, not, not just my favorite rom com of all time. It's my favorite comedy of all time. It's in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. Mm -hmm. No, uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall is oh. utter, utterly perfect of a movie. That's a fun movie. Other than, um, you know, uh, I, I don't condone all of Russell Brand's actions. <laughs> um, the but no, no, no. We didn't but, think but, you did, Jared, honestly. Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, you didn't peg me as the kind of guy that listened to yeah. the Russell Brand podcast. <laughs> nah, not at all. Um, he frightens me. Um, okay, so since I don't, I don't really have recommendations, though, uh, like I said before, uh, John Patrick Shanley tends to answer my 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 DMs, <laughs> my emails. So I hit him up. So you just slid into JP Shan's DMs. I did, and I said, I said, you know, hey, Mister Shanley, I hope you're doing well. What movies would you recommend to people who like your movie Moonstruck? And uh, he actually gave me two, which like is the format of the pod. So maybe he's maybe he listens to it. Uh, <laughs> probably not. But uh, okay, so his both of his movies are uh, movies from the '40s about uh, women uh, who are kind of torn between like the passionate love and like uh, kind of other flavors of love, and they they both also uh, pertain to the performing arts. And there are two very, very, very well-liked movies. One is Children of Paradise. Ooh. And uh, the other is The Red Shoes. Ah! Yes. Two and um, mm -hmm. yeah, honestly, way better than any of our picks. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> I'm acting surprised, but you told me these already. And Children of Paradise would have been my recommendation, too. I, If you want, I think I, yeah, it's the most charming movie that's ever been made. I, oh, my God. Made in France right in the middle of World War II. 
It was a giant like, fuck you to the Nazis. It's like, we're just going to make great art and have a fun time with a life-affirming film. Like, I've never teared up from pure charm before. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm I going to watch it. I haven't seen it, but I know so, so much. I know so much about, like, the backstory of, like, how it was made and kind of what it's about and everything that... Yeah. I mean, it's it's a long one, though, right? It's in, like... It's, like, a, kind of an intermission type of movie where yeah. you, could, you could just watch the whole half on its own and then later watch the second half, is my understanding. Uh, I, mean, I don't think um, it's, like, a... It's two hours and 43 minutes. I mean, that's not short, but it's not, like, a cut into two kind of uh, length. I think it is actually two movies, though. And it's, oh, it? it's longer than that. It's, like, it's it's over three hours. Oh, I didn't know. Um, I wonder what version I watched that. Yeah, I'm, and now I'm looking at it. Yeah, it's a two-part film released released in two parts and all that stuff but yeah i mean i think his i think surprise surprise john patrick shanley's picks were very very on point <laughs> and all he did was write the movie that we spent an hour and a half talking about <laughs> dan did you like moonstruck i thought it was fine i definitely liked it the least in the room but i didn't dislike oh We're but I attribute that to user error of my particular good boy Midwestern. Wait, uh, you were just made like so uncomfortable by yeah, like, like I couldn't get armed <laughs> because I was you uncomfortable be... with all the That's confrontation. So funny. You, would, you would be terrified by some of his plays then. Yeah. Yeah, really well, if, but if they're not trying to be charming and lighthearted, then yeah, oh, I that, oh, a lot Jared, of them are. you need to do like a theater in the round version of like one of his shows and like invite Dan and make sure that he's like right in the middle and stay oh, yeah. the, the actor no. like right next to him. Oh yeah, what we did when we did other? Danny in the Deep yeah. Blue Sea, we did one night only, pay what you can, and then we uh we we convinced some of the professors to give to give extra credit for students to come watch it and write about it and so we we were we had like like maybe 50 or 60 chairs and there was like 150 people there and so there's sort of like standing room like like me and kate surrounded on three sides it was so cool and there was just like and, a, a mattress just like thrown on the ground in the middle of like yeah. ground basically because the whole play is post-coital basically uh, yeah and, yeah we're like, like we're like, like in our underwear and beating the shit yeah, out of each it's other like it's the so worst good. version of pillow talk that you can possibly <laughs> imagine i dan i think you would have well you no, I, left probably or fainted I, one of like the i two. love stressful stuff like that when it's supposed to be stressful like i, I want to get him to do who's for, uh, afraid of virginia wolf later down this pod it's I love not that supposed one. to be that it's also kind of supposed to, it's it's less lighthearted than moonstruck but there's still definitely supposed to be like a comedic Mm. Oh, you mean in, in Danny in the Deep Blue Sea? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was it's funny. Not like, it's like, not we got like a lot of big laughs. Wolf, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's it's meant to. It's somewhere in between that and Moonstruck. I guess. Where I, I went into Moonstruck expecting Children of Paradise, where it's going to be really life affirming and charming and about human dignity, and I'm like, ah, I'm scared. Not when there's Italians involved. Yeah, exactly. It, like, we make uh, everything dramatic. I mean, it's, it's opera. I feel like you would hate opera. <laughs> but no, it's like, if that's what I'm going in for, if I know that's the tone, then that's fine. Mm. Uh, but like, if if I was supposed to believe that this is like a, and I'm sure they are a charming, nice family full of people who love each other. But like, my Midwestern ass was clocking this as a fucking war for an hour and a half. I feel like, I don't know, they also really express that they love each other all the time, too, though. You don't like, have to get though. Yeah, you do. You mean it. You gotta <laughs> yell it. You have to yell it right in the face of the person that you're telling it to. But like, I feel like it's 
so meaningful then when they do make up, you know, because of the whole like, like I'm thinking of that, that scene where, you know, like she tells him, I want you to stop seeing her. And he just slams his hands on the table and you think maybe there's going to be an outburst. And then he has that, like, I don't see how my life matters. And she's like, it does matter. Like, Tiamo, like, it matters because I love you. And yeah, I feel like that kind of passion, it's like, I don't know, it makes up for the, it goes hand in hand with and makes up for the yellingness. It's just yeah. high passion. I don't know. I think maybe I'm also way too middle class where I'm like, can we just <laughs> keep our voices down and we can speak <laughs> about this respectfully? There's no need to use that language right now. Hey, Please do not slam your tape or fists on the table. That is unnecessary. Please, we can talk about. <laughs> Think it. you're better than the rich plumber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet that like weird, creepy professor's family is super quiet. At oh my years. god! <laughs> yeah, that's probably more. Than they don't talk about anything. <laughs> Fraser's dad. Yeah, the dad, dad from grow up. <laughs> Some yeah. of the things that I like kind of wanted to honestly like what like, like what it's I don't know late. just like how like how high romance a lot of it is you know what i mean like the whole like the whole nicholas cage speech which is like one of my favorite things in the movie where he's like you know like i love you and it's not what i thought love was like you know love mm. ruins your life love's messy and that is such an operatic idea that's such a shanley idea he he basically a lot of his plays his characters will say essentially the same thing you know that like love ruins your life it's the most beautiful and horrible thing in the world. And like, I just, somebody that is, you know, in the operatic community, I love that kind of shit. Mm. You know, I want it to just be like turned up to 11. I think it's great. And that like, even though like, I would say like, as a person day to day, I'm not a big romantic, but when it comes to this kind of stuff, I'm just like, oh, like it gets me. See, and like, I don't know if you guys were affected by that or at all. You're like, oh, this is just cheese. Well, like, just not silly. cheese, but I was like, this is the first movie I thought of is like, no, this is Blue Valentine. And I was like, <laughs> ah, I'm scared. Like, Nick Cage, stay away from me. You're dangerous. I don't want this. He is ah. dangerous. Oh, Get your fancy yeah. hair and beautiful arms away Ooh. from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if this the movie had been made in, in 2007 and not 1987, then Ronnie would have been played by Ryan Gosling. Oh my god, he would have. Yeah. Oh, he would have done great. I would love to see that version. Of- we also didn't talk about... Uh, did you guys know about John Patrick Shanley's connection with um, op- and writing operas? No, go on. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. I, and I feel like I have. Like, I... Um, sorry. Like, I... Uh, didn't he, like kind of try and fail at one point oh he uh no he had a fairly successful um production of doubt actually oh neat yeah i think there was i can't remember there was like an original opera that he tried to do that like didn't pan out so well so then he was like fuck it i'll just adapt my most famous play um and i think they did it at chicago lyric uh initially and now it's been done everywhere but yeah there's a there's an opera version of doubt he did the libretto I haven't heard it or seen it, but I've heard good things. And uh, now um, it was announced in 2023 that uh, I think with the Met, I want to say they're working on um, adapting a opera version of Moonstruck uh, with him writing the libretto. Wow. Oh, that's Which, awesome. Yeah. I'm very excited and I can't believe it took that long. Is, can Cher come back as like the mom or something? I, I hope so. That'd be cool. Oh, I, that'd be very cool. I am so excited to see how and where like JP Shan is going to put in arias 
for like certain characters. Like I really and I, I like I really want to see the duet scene that's going to be like the snap out of it. You know, like mm. what is that going to sound like when like whoever's playing Loretta sings that line? Or yeah, where are you taking me? To the bed, like yeah. that's gotta be. Oh that's God. gotta be. This is just like, like very high, was, high drama music. Yeah, it was. It was just meant to be opera. Like clearly, that that was what yeah. it was meant to be. The, but the that, table's gonna go over. Yeah, but even stuff like I think about like a you know her grandfather you know doing the whole like oh la bella luna like with his dogs like mm-hmm. that's got to be an aria like him singing to the moon. It's yeah, just, like or, so perfect. Like the other couple. Uh, Cosmo's friends oh, that yeah. are like they're just the sweetest like yeah. the oh, example yeah, yeah. of just like the sweetest couple oh, so I would love to see to my midwesternness of me when they were like fighting and at each, what I thought was at each other's throats oh. in the convenience store I'm like this is a terrible marriage ah and then he's like oh, oh yeah I love you and it all like was okay I was like I see the girl that I married I couldn't, oh. that I couldn't was do a, that ah. that was a different, different couple, couple. different, different couple, couple yeah <laughs> But still, I can get why that would be uncomfortable. And I love how, you know, Loretta is just kind of not even paying attention to them. And then she smiles when they make up. Like, she just knew. She's like, oh, they don't mean it, you know? Like, it's it's that kind of reaction. Like, you don't take it seriously. I could never live east of Pittsburgh for that reason. (laughs) Uh, But, Jerry, what what arias would you want to hear? Like, what parts of this movie do you think could be turned into a great aria or duet? Oh, I mean... Straight from Nick Cage's original speech of they like oh yeah I have no hand I have no bride oh, yeah. he has a hand he has a bride yeah that's gonna be a hell <laughs> yeah. of an art yeah. yeah bring me the big the big knife I'm gonna cut my throat yeah like all of that <laughs> like has to be. I love that girl I also just I, I mean I love some of the small characters like that random you know bakery worker who's just like I'm in love with this oh, man he won't yeah. even look at me like I just love no, this I little moment do it. yeah. And like the woman that like curses the plane that Johnny's oh, yeah. oh, <laughs> like, that's an aria. on that plane. Yeah, oh my god, yes it is. Definitely that's, that's like aria. that's like a that's like a contralto aria. I see that it's just like an old woman like in really low range. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get uh, that. I, Classic I, contralto. I know. Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling that. I wish you guys uh, were like enough of music nerds so we could like voice type cast every character but (laughs) this is not the podcast for that so maybe nick cage will give it a a whirl at actually doing (laughs) the opera yeah you think he'll he'll be on stage at the met (laughs) probably not i i think he'll be there opening night though for sure maybe he'll at least maybe he'll like introduce it like he'll come on stage and like introduce it before i can totally see that happening i'd like that yeah yeah i want to seek out the doubt opera now that yeah. must be, I mean, that's such a small Didn't you send story. that to me, Jared? I thought it's in San Diego. No, no, not the opera. Uh, one of my favorite um, theater companies that I've worked for in the past, they just did the play. Hmm. Um, and that ended a few weeks ago. One of my really good friends, Leanne Muffson, was in it. Aww. Was that at um, New Village? New Village, yeah. New Village Arts, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're done here. Britta... Thanks for joining us. That was Thank a lot of you. fun. It was. I'm really, ex- I'm really excited for you to come back uh, to talk about uh, Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria in a oh, few weeks here. Me too. Yeah, it's going to be a fun. good time. All right. Well, as usual, thanks for listening. I'm Dan. When, and I'm Jared. And when the sound uh, hits your ear and we start talking about beer, 
That's a podcast. It's so upsetting. <laughs> I love it. You made me do it. <laughs> we did. <laughs>